0: Father, we thank you. Oh, the glories of the cross. This is where you displayed your love for us. And along with that love, you displayed the wrath against sin. And that is why this place, the cross, is so sobering. It is where your love and where your wrath meet. And we thank you that there was only one man, there was one God who could both demonstrate this love and who could sustain the wrath. None of us could, none of us would. So we thank you for our Savior. And since we magnify our Savior, we look to ourselves and we say we are sinners, Remind us these truths today, I pray. Help us to glory in Jesus Christ because He's a great Savior. He is a friend of sinners. He's our friend. We pray, Father, that You would, in our hearts, just stir up godly affections for Christ and for those who are sinners like us, that we would go forth and And we would tell him about this friend we have in Jesus. We ask in his holy name. Amen. Well, every year in March, America celebrates St. Patrick's Day. For many, uh, this is just another occasion to maybe take a day off and party with their friends. Not a lot of people know or even care about the history of This man who was actually a great example to Christians. He was born in what is now Scotland in 385 A.D. When he was 16 while working on his father's farm, he was kidnapped by Irish pirates and was forced to hard labor in Ireland. After about six years of hard labor and work, and imprisonment he escaped and he returned home to Scotland during his time there as a prisoner in Ireland he testifies that his his faith began to grow deeper and stronger and he sensed that God was leading him to return to Ireland in order to preach the gospel of Christ to his captors what motivated him was this constant awareness that he is a sinner, unworthy of God's grace, and he wanted others, his very own captors, to experience the same. He did return to Ireland, and he spent his last 30 years of his life serving the people there. Much of what we know about Patrick comes from his autobiography, which he begins with these words, My name is Patrick. I am a sinner. He had this profound awareness of who he was and from where God had rescued him. He never lost sight of this very reality. And because of this, he never lost sight of his Savior, Jesus Christ. What does the word sinner mean to you, church, when you hear of it? Would you feel comfortable beginning your own autobiography this way? My name is Tim. I am a sinner. There's something profound in remembering that you are a sinner because it constantly drives you to find your refuge in Jesus Christ, doesn't it? The fact that you're a sinner makes you look for a Savior. I mean, consider what what the great apostle Paul said in regards to this very theme. I mean, he never lost sight of who he was, of the reality. Towards the very end of his life, he's writing second to last of his letters, 1 Timothy. And he says in 1 Timothy 1.15, he says, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ, Jesus, came into the world to save sinners. And he doesn't stop there. He continues on and he says, among whom I am foremost of all. You think that, that this awareness would, after many, many years of being follower of Christ and, and, and pursuing Him, that it would somehow wear off. But it didn't for Paul. In fact, it got more and more intense. Why? Because what happens is if, if this truth that you're a sinner begins to diminish, then the cross of Christ is diminished. And it works the other way around. So we should never stop characterizing ourselves this way. We are Sinners, This church is full of sinners, even though we do good works, as Scripture says that God prepared us. Even though we change our evil habits into good habits by the grace and power of the Spirit, so that we become more and more like Christ. But our trust should never move from what Jesus had done for us to what we are now doing. And so, as we look at Matthew chapter 9, we come this morning to Matthew's own conversion account in which he reveals the heart of Christ. Namely, that Christ desires, he longs to show mercy, love to undeserved sinners. And it's amazing when you read this account, Matthew is not ashamed of his past in the slightest. He is not trying to hide who he was and who he is now because it only serves to accent God's glory, his mercy, his love towards sinners. Look with me at Matthew chapter 9. We'll begin reading with verse 9 through verse 13. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth and he said to him follow me and he got up and followed him then it happened that as jesus was reclining at the table in the house behold many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with jesus and his disciples when the pharisees saw this they they said to his disciples why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners But when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. As we consider this account of Matthew's conversion in like third person, doesn't refer to himself, and I saw, and Jesus saw me, but Matthew, very interesting, we will talk about these details, but here's what I want us to see as we just zoom out and, and, and look at this entire section. Jesus, church, is the merciful physician who came to show needy sinners the love of God and to equip sinners to do the same. So Jesus came to show us that we're needy and to show us the love and mercy of God and in turn to equip us so that we can turn around to fellow sinners like Matthew did here in this section and let that uh, love and let that mercy flow through us so that others would benefit from hearing about this great Redeemer. This is a great picture of who jesus is and as we learn my prayer is that we could turn around and do the same church i want us to look at three portraits of jesus christ here and what they teach us number one jesus is a merciful physician who seeks needy sinners he seeks needy sinners look with me at verse 9 as jesus went on from there he saw a man called matthew as Matthew continues to compose his account of Christ's ministry here in Matthew 8 and 9, he moves on from the previous scene where Jesus is teaching in the house, as we studied last Sunday, to another scene very close, still in Capernaum, by the Sea of Galilee. Uh, although we're not really sure how much time had passed after the healing of paralytic, Matthew wants us to see that that this next section, this next episode is closely tied to the previous one by this simple conjunction and or in our nasby translation this term as so verse seven and he got up and went home that's the paralytic verse eight but when the crowd saw this they were awestruck and glorified god who had given such authority to man and jesus went on and as jesus went on from there so he had just told us about a group of men who brought their friend to Jesus so that he would heal him. And Jesus, in addition to, remember, healing the flesh, he what? Restores the soul by forgiving sin. Jesus proves here that he had the authority to forgive sin to anybody who would come to him. But what about those who are ashamed to come to Christ? In other words, how much sin... Would Jesus forgive? Would he forgive any sinner? And to answer this question, Matthew then inserts his own testimony here in verses 9 through 13. Now, by all accounts, as I said, we are in Capernaum, very close to the Sea of Galilee as these tax booths they were strategically positioned to catch traffic that would be coming off the main highway and also all the traffic that would be coming from the Sea of Galilee so that whoever's in this booth, they could tax both parties. We'll talk about taxes in just a little bit. Remember, Capernaum is Jesus' own city. Chapter 9, verse 1. He spent a lot of time in this city and also in nearby regions. He was preaching the gospel. He was working all these miracles as proof to his messiahship. And no doubt, this man Matthew here, he heard about Jesus Christ. This is not the first time he hears of him. He hears from him. No doubt he's aware of who this is. Because being a tax collector, Matthew would know what's going on in the region. Especially as these large crowds are following after this rabbi named Jesus. Maybe his business as a tax collector was negatively impacted as well by those who chose to drop some things and go after Jesus Christ. He must have heard something about the miracle that took place in Matthew chapter 8 on the Sea of Galilee, how Jesus silenced the wind and he calmed the waves, and then how he got to the other side and he freed two demoniacs were just causing a lot of trouble to the residents there and matthew here he's a jew maybe from the tribe of levi because his second name is levi matthew the levi when the other two gospel writer mark and john they refer to the same account of the calling of matthew it's interesting that they refer to Matthew as Levi, not Matthew. Matthew is the only one who refers to himself as Matthew. So he's a Jew. He's grew up as a Jew. And, and I don't think it's a stretch. Think about this. It's not a stretch to conclude that Matthew had some exposure as a Jew to scriptures, And maybe even knew some of the Old Testament prophecies concerning this Messiah. But something must have happened where... Matthew turned his back on his people and went to work for the enemy because that's exactly what you do as a Jewish tax collector working for the Roman Empire. And so the Jews treated tax collectors as enemies. Alfred Adershine, he's a Jewish scholar, he wrote, That tax collectors were barred from synagogues and forbidden to have any contact, even social contact, with other fellow Jews. They were ranked, get this, with robbers, murderers. They were assigned to the same class as unclean animals and were never allowed to give any testimony in the Jewish court. Why such hatred towards this group of people? Well matthew he had this prestigious position to collect taxes on all goods that were imported by the sea of galilee and Also through highway traffic and both exported out He could tax For he could collect property taxes business taxes toll taxes license fees and whatever else that he thought was necessary. I mean, they virtually had unlimited power and could tax basically anything and even any activity. As long as they paid Rome their share, they could levy any additional percentage on top of that. Not only were Jews felt oppressed by these foreigners, but to have, think about it, to have one of your own who grew up with you Perhaps even profess to know Yahweh, join the enemy, and cause such harm was all the more insulting. Think about this. It, if given the opportunity to write your own conversion story in light of everything that I've said, what would you highlight about it? Would you say, I was a sinner? followed by but, and then proceed to give a list of good things that you've done since then? I mean, so often we feel the need to give a disclaimer about admitting that we're sinners. But church, the, the basic principle of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus came to save sinners. And so being sinners, Jesus saves us. And we're constantly under his mercy. And Matthew wants to highlight for us to know that he's a sinner when he writes this in verse 9, that I was sitting in the tax collector's booth. He wasn't ashamed of that. He wasn't looking for Jesus. Maybe he was even ashamed to do so. Maybe he thought that Jesus would act just like any other teacher around among his people. He would walk by, he would look down, he would sneer, and he would move right along. Yet Matthew writes that Jesus saw me. Jesus saw this man. Can you imagine what a shock it must have been for Matthew to to notice Jesus' glance? And not only that, but what a greater shock to Matthew when Jesus looks at him with love and says, You follow me. Think about his crowds of people, right? He he could turn around to anybody, but he left the house to go to the tax collector's booth and call someone he will to call. Friends, what is going on here? Here's what's going on. Sinners do not look for God. They don't seek God. God seeks sinners. Even the earlier accounts, when, when sinners saw God, when sinners saw Christ, they looked for physical healings only, not for the removal of their sins. Sinners in their sin do not seek for God, and it's important for us to see this and to understand. Isaiah 53, 6 says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. That's who we are by nature. Romans 3.11, there is none who understands. There is none who seek for God. Given this reality, the truth of the gospel is that God seeks us. He seeks sinners. Jesus came to call sinners. That's what verse 13 says. In Luke chapter 19, verse 20, right after the conversion of another, uh, tax collector, we all know him, Zacchaeus. Jesus said this: "For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost." Friends, sinners don't see God because God is holy, and no sinner wants to deal with a holy and just God. Imagine this: it's it's as if a criminal would be seeking a policeman. You you don't see criminals seeking out, policemen. You see them running away and hiding. Why? Because of justice. And yet Jesus does not seek them as our policemen would seek in order to bring people to justice and to condemn. Jesus seeks them not to condemn them, but to save them, to save Matthew because he's full of love, mercy, mercy. And grace, and that is why he is worthy, as we were singing of all praise. Jesus takes the initiatives and and goes to this notorious sinner right in the middle. Think about this, right in the middle of his sinful activity. He doesn't wait till Matthew shuts the door, shuts the booth, five o'clock, time to clock out, and then catches him on the way out. No, right in the middle, the heart of the business, he goes in and he says, you, drop it. And you follow me. The one who's despised, hopelessly lost in the sight of society. And as we'll see in the rest of the text, in the sight of these religious Pharisees, this one receives mercy from Jesus. I want you to think about this name, Matthew. Matthew means a gift from God, or God has given a gift. That's what Matthew means. And as I've mentioned, the other gospel writers, they all refer to Matthew as Levi, right? Someone who is a Jew, perhaps belonged to the tribe of, of Levi, so maybe even kind of try to soften, right, this guy's character. Like, he's one of us. But Matthew would have none of that. He says, no, I'm, a, I'm, I'm Matthew. Matthew. Why did he choose to refer to himself as Matthew? Maybe because he's testifying with his very name that right in the middle of this hustle and bustle, he receives a gift from God by being called by God. That day, he says, when I was sitting in the tax booth, God gave me a gift, a tax collector is drawn to Christ by Christ. I was reading this uh, week D.A. Carson's commentary on this passage and was flipping through it and and he mentioned something very alarming. He says, he cites two scholars who, who thought that it was, quote, unlikely that a person living on the despised outskirts of Jewish life could be responsible for this gospel. In other words, if Matthew was this tax collector, it was impossible for him to write this gospel. Is that offensive. And then I was thinking, well, isn't that the point? Right, none of these guys would be what they are, separate from Christ. None of these men, none of his disciples, they're a rowdy bunch that amounted to very little without God's grace. The real player here that Matthew presents is not himself. It is Christ. It is Jesus who seeks out needy sinners. And Matthew, he says, I want you to know that. I want you to know that and I want you to revel in that because he told me, verse 9, follow me. It's the same call that was made to Peter And Andrew, James, and John, the two sets of brothers, right, in Matthew chapter 4. And it says that they left everything. They even left their father, and they followed him. Simple command, come after me. And Matthew here leaves everything behind, and he goes after Jesus without hesitation. And and it is striking, looking to your Bibles, look at that verse, look at the end of verse 9. It is is striking how similar Matthew's reaction is to the paralytic. Look at this. Verse 9, and he got up and followed him. Look at verse 7. As soon as Jesus says, get up, pick up your bed, and go, and he got up and went home. Instant. You hear the command of Christ, and you go up, and you go follow him. Immediate obedience. And consider something else. Matthew's reaction here, it's not impulsive. It's not impulsive, but it is very decisive. Think about this. Matthew was leaving behind a career that once you abandon, you can't go back to. Okay? First, in the case of Matthew, you've traded your own people to work for the enemy, for the Romans. And now you're giving up this lucrative gig to go follow after some rabbi, there were many, I'm sure, who would line up to take his place if Matthew abandons his post. And if Matthew was going to return back, there would be no way now that he turned his back on Romans that they would accept him into this position. Not only that, but you couldn't really get a job among your own countrymen, among the Jews either, since you've abandoned them you are a tax collector think about this other men like james and john peter and andrew they could go back to their craft if this whole following after jesus doesn't work out what did they abandon they abandoned everything that they had but they abandoned boats their family business in fact that's exactly what happened right when jesus died and they're, they have no idea what's going on. They're like, well, where's the boat? Let's go back. I think this is over. I think this is done. They go back. Matthew here can't. There is no return. And, and that only serves to show that this person, this man, this Jesus who is calling him, he is worthy to drop everything behind and surrender to him at all cost. Jesus, friends, he reorients your whole life when he calls you, and that is a very beautiful thing. He finds you in your need, and he calls you to be his disciple. And what do you do? You go. You obey the voice of his command because his voice is saving voice. You trust him that wherever he leads you, he will provide for you. Church, We, who have been sought out by Christ, needy sinners, we are to follow the example of our merciful Savior who seeks out fellow sinners. We, who have experienced the love of the Father in His Son, Jesus Christ, ask yourself, will we not go to places where sinners are in despair of their sin, feeling hopeless and helpless? Here's a reminder for us that we are desperate sinners who were personally sought out by a dear Lord and Savior. And here's also an example for us to show mercy by seeing like Jesus sees fellow sinners and inviting them to come. So would you learn from Christ that Jesus is a merciful physician who seeks needy Sinners who sought us out, and he wants us to seek others like us. Matthew doesn't doesn't stop giving us his own testimony here. Consider the, the second thought here, the second portrait. Jesus is a merciful physician who welcomes, not only seeks, but welcomes needy sinners. Matthew leaves behind his old profession and he follows Jesus, and immediately after his conversion, Matthew decides to throw a party for Jesus. Now, here it says, and it happened as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house. We know that if we combine the other two testimonies of Mark and Luke, it says that a Levi, pointing back to Matthew, he wanted to do this in honor of Jesus Christ, and he did it in his own house. must have been a very fairly large place, because he says here that many tax collectors and sinners were dining with him. You know that saying birds of feather flock together? <laughs> Matthew had a lot of friends. And they weren't really good friends according to our standard. Matthew, being a tax collector, he had a lot of sinners. He had a lot of tax collectors for friends. And he rounds them up. Being um, v- verse 10 here, look at verse 10. It says many tax collectors and sinners. This this, this verse or this word term sinners in verse 10 was um, sort of a a catch-all word referring to all kinds of people like robbers and murderers, prostitutes, drunkards, and alike. In other words, dirty people, people who were too far gone, they were deep in their sinful way of life, um, and they basically were identified by the Jews to be sinners like their lifestyle whatever they were pursuing and doing that is who they became they're just sinners that's all they do but being a new convert here Matthew packs his house to tell his friends about Jesus Christ he invites Jesus and invites his disciples and he introduces his friends to his Lord I mean it's very similar to what what many new converts do right you you convert to Christianity, you convert to Christ, what do you do? You go around and you tell people, Jesus saved me. He forgave my sin and you need to meet him too. That's what you do. And look at the text. Jesus was reclining at the table with them. This is amazing. This is, think about picture, right? Picture of Fellowship and table and eating and and communion. Jesus is communing with a bunch of sinners. Jesus is with them, reclining at the table, uh, co-reclining, literally. He is with them. Isn't this a, a picture of a spiritual reality? Sinners in the presence of God having fellowship with him. Jesus welcomes needy sinners to come and to recline with him. Listen, to to share a meal at this point was to share life. It was an intimate time of friendship. Jesus here welcomes his disciples and all these other sinners, and he blesses them with his holy presence because, because, verse 13 says, he came to call sinners. That's why. Don't ever forget this church. Jesus always made time for sinners. He was often criticized because of the kind of people he was found eating with. His opponents said that he was, quote, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, Matthew eleven nineteen. 19. Man, you got to work really hard to get this title. You are... <laughs> A friend of sinners. Not just when you hang out with them, you know, every once in a while, but you're known to be hanging out with these sinners, so therefore you're dubbed, hey, that's a friend of sinners. In fact, they went as as far as to say that he was a gluttonous man and a drunkard. Those who watched him would often complain, quote, he has gone to be a guest of a man who is a sinner, Luke 19, 7. But it's fascinating to see how the most sinful of people seem to be the ones who were most comfortable in his presence and most eager eager to be with him. Why? Because they were sinking in the sea of their own sin and they needed a savior because they knew that Jesus loved them. What about God's people? What about the people who were they're waiting for the arrival of the Messiah so that he would sit with them and fellowship with them. What about those people? Well, verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? They're outside. They're probably across the street, afraid to be too close to sinners. And as this party maybe ends, you know, wraps up, you see a bunch of sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes begin to leave the house. And the disciples are maybe chatting with them. They're, they're, they're talking. They're maybe making some, some plans to meet again. And then the Pharisees, they pull his disciples and they complain to them. And what did they say? Why? why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners i mean this is interesting they don't bring up this complaint against the teacher right who is agitating them but instead they seek out his disciples kind of like a coward move right and just a side note friends don't do this Don't be like the Pharisees. Go directly to the people, right, that you have an issue with. In fact, it's interesting when you look at the next uh, section here. The disciples of John seem to pick up a cue from them, and now instead of going directly to the disciples to address their issue with them, they go to Jesus. (laughs) Interesting. Like, no, go to the party that, that offends you directly to them. And so that's why Jesus here, he, he does not allow his disciples to answer, but he steps in and he, he confronts this group. Remember this whole idea of fellowshipping with, with these people, fellowshipping the Jew with the Gentile. To them it was so, so offensive. They would never eat together any kind of meal. Even like the disciples who, after this encounter, after seeing Jesus do this constantly, remember Acts chapter 10 and the vision of of Peter, where Peter is confused, he's struggling with the same thought. How would I eat with a Gentile? And then in Galatians, he's tripping over again again. Over the same exact issue. It was just ingrained with the, in them that we cannot do this together. How could Jesus be sitting there with them, sharing his life with them? This whole picture of Jesus sitting and fellowshipping, it, it, it communicates, right, and it points to this future banquet in the kingdom of heaven to which already Jesus alluded to. Look with me at Matthew chapter 8. And he says, verse 11, I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the utter darkness. Same banquet. And remember also, uh, Jesus could could welcome sinners, but because he was Jesus, he is not defiled by them because he came to forgive their sins and to save them pharisees they don't get it and they call him why is your teacher why is your teacher so they call him teacher maybe inferring that listen this man this rabbi of yours he's he's not setting a good example for you to follow what's he doing eating with sinners but little do they know that jesus was in fact setting an example for us to follow we are to welcome when we are to commune with poor with the needy and the despised sinners of this world in order to invite them to know and fellowship with the lord friends like matthew we are to welcome them and the question is flip it am i am i welcoming needy sinners some of us have been saved for a very long time do we still have this passion, this desire to see more and more people? Maybe we forgot that we're sinners. Maybe that's our problem. Maybe th- we think that we've graduated, we moved on, we are now holy nation and we are. But we are sinners in desperate need, in continual need of God's grace. Yes, we've been washed, we've been regenerated, we've been made new. Amen to all of that. But we don't cease to be those in desperate need of Christ. And when we see ourselves, as Paul says, Jesus came to save me and I'm the first, foremost. When you have this kind of attitude towards yourself and towards Christ, you will go and you will proclaim. How welcome do you think needy sinners feel around you and me? Can they sense the love of Christ as we interact with them and open up our homes when they come in here to this very place? How welcoming are we in showing them God's love? Do we long for it? Something that each one of us need to answer this in our hearts. I hope that we're all growing in this. So so Jesus is a merciful physician who who seeks needy sinners. He's a merciful physician who welcomes them. And, And finally, I want you to see here in this interaction with the Pharisees that Jesus is a merciful physician who declares God's purpose for needy sinners. Declares God's purpose. The Pharisees stand there and they judge. They judge Christ sort of like if only... He knew who he was eating with. Remember Luke? Luke chapter 7, verse 39. There was a Pharisee. Jesus was in the Pharisee's house. And this Pharisee is saying if this man was a prophet, if he was who he says he is, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner probably referring to her being a prostitute if only jesus knew who's touching him he's being defiled why would he ever allow another sinner to come in close contact with him man and we're so often too quick to judge these pharisees right if only these pharisees knew but friends in reality we're we're so much more like the pharisees than we are like jesus christ Let's just face the truth. Instead of seeing the depth of our sin, how wretched we really are, and in turn see see the glorious forgiveness of sin we have in Jesus Christ, we're so often preoccupied with, you know, being distracted by the sins of others. Oh, look at him. Like, look, look at her. Look at this. Look at that. And here we need to learn that the only thing you need to be preoccupied is with your own sin, and with your great Savior. That's exactly what the Pharisees are not doing. He says, look at this bunch. Jesus steps in. He wants to declare the truth to the Pharisees. And in declaring truth, Jesus reveals to these sinners the heart of God, and, and, and he does this with three things. Listen, Jesus doesn't say that God doesn't care about sin. In order to convey God's love and mercy, we must not alter the message of God's word or or seek to soften the condemning power of God's law. God calls sin, sin. And he warns that sin will be judged, but when Jesus comes this time, he says, I do not come to judge, I come to save. First here, Jesus gives them a logical explanation, and he says, listen, man only the sick need the physician there's a bit of satire here irony here the pharisees think that they're healthy and jesus says that's exactly why i'm not fellowshipping with you you don't think you need me they do that's why i'm there i mean imagine going to a doctor and and complaining to him saying you know what doc I really don't like the vibe right around here with all of you sickos here around you. Like, that, that's just not my place. I, I don't like it. I mean, what else do you expect when he's a doctor who'd invested multiple years into studying medicine and to become a doctor so that he could heal the sick? That's his thing. That's his career. That's what he does. Well, what else would you expect the Savior of sinners to be associated with, if not with sinners, desperate of salvation? If we proclaim the gospel of Jesus' church, then we should expect that our church family to be filled with people who are broken, who are damaged by sin, because we proclaim the message of a merciful physician And listen, we are broken by sin. Who are we fooling? We are broken by sin, but we rejoice in being restored by a great Savior. Let's not misdiagnose our condition before the Lord. We're in great need of divine physician. Jesus came for us. We are all born with a terminal illness. And the question is, do you see it? The Pharisees didn't. And Jesus is trying to expose their need to them. You're born with a terminal illness, and it's only a matter of time before it kills you. And I, Jesus says, am the only doctor who can take care of the problem. But second, Jesus gives them a scriptural explanation. He quotes the words of God from Hosea 6, 6, virtually saying that God had already addressed your bad attitude here that you're demonstrating. Um, Hosea. Hosea prophesied 750 uh, BC, between 750 and 15 BC. God's people, they had financial prosperity and ease in life, but they fell prey to the ways of the nation. So Hosea here preaches against their evil. And I mean, I don't know if you've read the book of Hosea lately. You should go back and do it to illustrate their unfaithfulness to Israel. God tells this prophet to go marry a prostitute. He told Hosea to go, and he says, go and buy her from a slave market and pay whatever you need to pay to get her, and you treat her as a virgin, even though she will prove to be unfaithful to you as to her other many husbands. Why? What's the point? He says, because this is how I love my people. They continue to go astray. They run from me. I am showering my love on them, and yet they continue to go and fornicate with other gods. That's the heart of God. So Jesus here, understanding the background of Hosea, tells the Pharisees, go and learn. But go and learn. This is not so subtle rebuke. It's like telling PhDs to go back to school and to brush up on their homework. Yeah, you just wrote that 300-page dissertation. You didn't do a very good job. Go back and read. Go back and study. Go and understand. Go and learn that I desire compassion and not sacrifice compassion, mercy, this word for hesed, right, for his covenant love, his steadfast love. God desired that his people demonstrate such love towards both God and other people. They were unfaithful. They were adulterous to God. Their idolatry during Hosea's time has resulted in the mistreatment of both the poor and the needy. So they were making sacrifices according to the law. Yeah, they are bringing all of these things to him because it was required by Moses. But their lives, they demonstrated lack of love and compassion and mercy. And Jesus says, love first, mercy or sacrifice later. Listen, love was the end, and sacrifice was the means to that end. Jesus is showing that his Father places the priority of mercy over sacrifices, and so should you, he says. And finally, he gives them a theological explanation. There's a logical, scriptural, and theological, he says, for I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. The Pharisees were those who sought themselves as righteous. Those who don't see themselves as needy sinners have no interest in Savior. That's why, so often, like in our lives, with our friends, with our family members, it hurts to see people, it hurts to see how God is working in their lives, just humbling them, removing everything away from them, stuff that they rely on constantly. They think there's security in that. They think there's salvation in that. They think that, that this, is, this is it. They lack nothing. And, and God one by one starts to remove them so that they begin to see their need for Christ. These Pharisees, they were like the people described in Revelation 3:17 when saying of themselves, "I am rich, I have become wealthy, I have no need for nothing not knowing in reality that they were wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus came to call sinners who know that they are truly sinners and have no hope apart from God's mercy through his Son. That's why John 3.17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Church, If God's heart is for sinners like us, then would we not reflect his heart towards other sinners? The only cure that can be found from sin is Christ, so let us, full of faith, express the heart of God by being merciful to others and point them to this very merciful physician. Jesus is the merciful physician who came to show needy sinners the love of God and to equip needy sinners to do the same. Do you see yourself as a needy sinner this morning? Then you are glory in your great Savior. That's it. If you don't, it diminishes the glory of Christ. And once our our hearts are transformed by the love of Christ, will we not have the same attitude? I think this is what Matthew is pointing to and contrasting here. I trust that God is, is producing in us this desire not only to glory in, but to go to sinners and compel them to find grace from this glorious Christ. Father, we thank you for this truth. We thank you that you sought us out. We would never come to you. You came. You grabbed us. You took hold of us. Grabbed our attention. You enabled us to believe in Jesus Christ, and now we are yours, and we would never go back. A lot is going on. There are a lot of temptations, but we trust you that you will hold us to the end because you are the greatest you're the most glorious you gave us what we ultimately needed at one point we didn't know we needed it we were your enemies we were running from you but you opened up our eyes and so we we pray that you would do the same even among those who are here who are, do not love Jesus Christ who do not understand that they're in in great need maybe they're just here because that's just part of them being good It's just part of what they do. Confront them. And would you confront your church and encourage your church to go forth and to be like this, Matthew, opening up our doors, our homes, our places, going to where sinners are and impacting our society, our neighborhoods with your love. We thank you for the power of the gospel to change and to transform us. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.